Jesus replied, I assure you that you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the food you wanted. Don't work for the food that doesn't last, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the human one will give you. God the Father has confirmed him as his agent to give life. They asked, what must we do in order to accomplish what God requires? Jesus replied, this is what God requires, that you believe in him whom God sent. They asked, what miraculous sign will you do that we can see and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus told them, I assure you, it wasn't Moses who gave the bread from heaven to you, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, Sir, give us this bread all the time. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 6, 26 to 35. All right. Hey, y'all. My name is Jonah. <laughs> so thank you, Andy, for our reading today. What we are talking about today is, is Jesus and nourishment and the meal. Now, uh, we've called it Love Feast, which is a, a classic name for a way to approach the communion meal. But it, it became something else over time. It was called the agape meal. And agape is a Greek word for love. And in, in Greek, there are a couple of different ways of talking about love. And this one is about a sort of all-encompassing love, a love that is holy and beyond any individual relationship. I think of it very much akin to the way that we talk about solidarity. Agape is understanding that oneself, one's well-being, one's life, one's joy is bound up in that of everyone else, that we are all in this together. And so agape is this love that flows through us, that binds us together, where we see our interests bound up in one another. And in that way, it is a radical, radical love. And an agape meal was a time to come together around a table to nourish at every level, to eat a meal that would strengthen the body, to eat a meal that would provide for the community, to eat a meal that would spiritually strengthen and support each other, to build community that was bound by that revolutionary love. Now, love feasts and communion were the same thing at the beginning. The scriptures refer to a love feast in a way that they're talking about this as just a regular practice. The love meal was the communion table. In our times, it has been stripped down to just bread and wine. And we'll talk a little bit about how that happened. But I want you to imagine a world, a, a religious spiritual community in which the communion meal, the meal that we eat every time we gather, was not just a bite and a sip, but a lavish banquet. A meal so laden, so provided that no one could be hungry. A meal that was so rich in both taste and nourishment and connection that all would go away full at every level. This, I believe, is the vision for the communion, for the love meal, for the agape feast. 
that Jesus had for us. Now, in Christian history, as Christianity became co-opted by the ruling class, it became seen as indulgent and too lavish. People were enjoying themselves too much at church, and they should be more solemn and serious. They shouldn't be indulging in food or, my goodness, wine at church. Does that sound like a familiar energy that any of us have heard of? Church should be boring is like the main underlying theme, but also church should have a sense of scarcity, solemnity, and hierarchy. And this is the true radicalism of the agape meal. It is fundamentally anti-hierarchy. It is upending in the way that the Gospel of Luke talks about. The first will become last, the last will become first. Everything is leveled into a gathering of equals, of family. Sisters, brothers, siblings, sharing a family meal. This is the vision that Jesus set out for us. And I think that it's telling that the church very quickly started to sound like the very people who accused Jesus while he was alive. Jesus, the one who was called a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus, the one who caught all kinds of flack for eating too many meals with the wrong kinds of people. Jesus, who in half of the biblical stories has food in his mouth. Dude was basically always healing people or feeding people because Jesus understands that food matters, joy matters, provision matters, and community is bound up in all of those things. Community without nourishment is nothing. Relationship without provision is empty. And so when we come together, we provide for one another at spiritual and material levels. And this is why Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The bread of life. Eating is the point of life. Life is about connection. Being truly alive is about nourishing one another spiritually, materially, relationally. Now we're really tempted, like the early church and, and the, the church hierarchies rather, to spiritualize this, to hyper-spiritualize it, to say, oh, I'm the bread of life spiritually only. This is talking about how we don't even need bread, right? Jesus said, I don't live on bread alone. That must mean Jesus didn't live on bread really at all. Jesus becomes this hyper-spiritual figure, and we think about nourishment only in terms of our spirits. But that ignores all of the material examples of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus encountered people, he healed their bodies, fed their bodies, and fed their spirits secondarily, Right? The, the spiritual healing comes through the meal. The spiritual healing comes through the healing of the body. The spiritual healing comes through relationship. Our God meets us in the material and meets us in our bodies. And so to pretend otherwise is to give in to those hierarchies of oppression that would rather we just sit back and say, oh, my spirit is tended, I need nothing else. And... We can also be tempted in our radicalism, in our materialism, to despiritualize Jesus and to just start a secular nonprofit. <laughs> I know I've been tempted, right? That we do need the, the material provisions of life, and we can then neglect the spirit. But that ignores the deep spiritual implications of all of Jesus' material provision. 
When Jesus heals, he does so at every level. When Jesus feeds, he does so at every level. How can we nourish our bodies, our minds, our spirits, and our community all at once? This is the beauty and radical vision of the love feast. The feast where we come with the best of ourselves, where we come with all of our needs, where we come with the fullness of our community and we meet one another. We exchange what we have to fill what we need. In today's text, it references the manna from heaven. So when we ask the question, who is our God? Who is our God? What is the nature of our God? Our God is the God who poured down food from the sky for God's people. Our God literally rains down food from the heavens. Who is our God? Our God tells her people to have several feasts a year just because. Just because it is worth it. Just because it is life. Just because remembering and storytelling, the way that we feed our spirit, it needs to be punctuated by food and song and dance. It needs to be met in our bodies our God is the God whose rituals of connection and repentance involve community barbecues and picnics. Always come with food. Our God is the one who tells us that the birds and lilies are taken care of, and so are we. Our God instructs us never to hoard wealth and provision, but to give it away freely to all. To be not owners, but stewards of this creation to be sharers. Our God says it's not how long you've worked in the field that determines whether you get to eat for the day. Our God says come to the party whenever you arrive. Our God suggests that the world's biggest party foul is taking too much from others, so much that there is anyone excluded from the abundance of the banquet. Our God loves a feast and will not abide anyone going hungry or lonely or outcast. So where did we go so wrong? How did we end up with a communion table with a bite and a sip and a whole lot of rules? How many people have been told they are unworthy of the table of the Lord? How many people have been told that they need to go away hungry until they are right for the table? That is not the table of the Lord. That is the table of empire. That is the table of hierarchy and domination. The table of the Lord is set as a feast, as a banquet for all. And the only ones excluded are those who will not share freely with all. All of God's creation who deserves it. Now we see this, this terrible hierarchy creeping its way into the church from the very beginning. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we have Paul trying to address a disparity in the love feast of that community. Corinth was an interesting setting because most Christians at this time throughout the land were poor. Poor and working class people meeting underground because the hierarchies and those in power and those with wealth wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But in Corinth, there were some aristocrats who had mingled enough to hear the message of Jesus. And they joined the Christian community. All are welcome. Also lay down your wealth. <laughs> and the communal meal became a problem. You see, it would have been hosted by the wealthy in that community. 
And we learn from the way that Paul is writing that not everyone got the same food. He writes, one remains hungry, another gets drunk. We discern from the text that some were getting there early and some would arrive later. And we imagine that that probably means that the leisure class was able to arrive early to eat and drink and hang. And they would begin without their comrades. They would begin without the working class and poor members of their community who would have to arrive after work. And the feast had already begun without them, and the most lavish items had already been consumed. In fact, it would have been very commonplace in that society for even lower-class people dining at an upper-class location to just be given different food altogether, that the wealthy would receive the best and the poor would receive the rest. That would have been normative in that culture, but it was not okay, not normative, not the body of Christ in a Christian community. And so these meals, these meals were supposed to transgress these boundaries. These meals were not supposed to emulate the boundaries and hierarchies of society, but to demolish them, to have people sitting side by side imagining a different kind of world where there was no poor or aristocrat. Paul urged them, when you eat together, wait for one another. Be together. Now Paul, in his limitations, suggests that the solution to these lavish lavish meals would to just be eat at home. And perhaps he meant just in the excess. If you want to hang out and pregame, whatever, do that at home. But come to the party for the party with the party people and share in your abundance. However Paul meant it, it got interpreted over time as saying, the meal is the problem. Not the exclusion, not the hierarchy, not the class politics, the meal. And so the meal got reduced to bread and wine. Now, don't get me wrong, I love bread and wine. And it's still an incredibly powerful sacramental experience. But what a loss. What a loss for the Christian community. Now, the love feast was not dead. It just got separated from the sacrament of communion. And there have been communities, Christian fellowships over time that have reimagined and recreated the love feast over and over again. The Brethren, the Moravians, even some Methodists, have revived the practice as a full, lavish meal, (coughs) complete with songs and testimony and so much joy. And this can be truly revolutionary. I want you to fully understand and imagine with me for a moment how revolutionary a shared common meal can be. How many of y'all familiar with the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense? So, the Black Panther Party has gotten a very interesting reputation over time. And that's in part because FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who was, just as a summary, a real bummer, (laughs) famously targeted radicals, progressive, anti-war activists, but especially black civil rights and liberation leaders. Hoover went after them with malice and violence. 
And he called the Black Panther Party the greatest threat to internal security of the country. Why? <laughs> well, they were revolutionary, and they, they didn't pretend about that at all. They were very bold. They were a revolutionary socialist organization. And they had huge critiques of the hierarchies of oppression in the world. Huey P. Newton, uh, one of the leaders, said, we have two evils to fight, capitalism and racism. We must destroy both racism and capitalism. And it is this coming together, this understanding of the analysis of the interplay between capitalism and racism that so deeply frightens the establishment of the United States. Newton has an analysis here of American history. He talks about how uh, slavery and the wealth accumulated by the enslavement of black people built the wealth of the nation. He calls slavery capitalism in the extreme. But the analysis went so deep and so far, connected to all people of color as well as poor white people through class struggle. The BPP was a revolutionary organization and the most widespread action they took, the most broadly impactful human-to-human -human program they took on was free breakfast for children. Now that may seem out of place when you're picturing black berets and open carry patrols, but the BPP argued that free breakfast for children was one of the most revolutionary things that they did. In one of their newspapers they wrote, why a breakfast program for children? The answers to this question need be answered only for those who belong to the upper or so-called middle class. Food insecurity, they name in the black community, the Mexican-American community, among Asian-Americans and poor white folks, was a huge problem. They said, hunger is one of the means of oppression and it must be halted. The Black Panther Party believed that, that children could be uh, taught and cultivated to become amazing thinkers and radicals, but not if they were too hungry to learn. Now, there was actually a lot of institutional resistance to this. One of the former Panthers told a reporter about what happened when she was helping to initiate the program in Chicago. She said, it was a lot of organizing because, of course, we had to go out and find people to give us food for the program and all that. Anyways, the night before it was to open, the Chicago police broke into the church where we had all the food. They mashed up all the food and urinated on it. So we had to delay the opening. But what that caused was all kinds of attention, and people were just lining up to give us donations. <laughs> and this is the revolutionary spirit of a free food program. This is the revolutionary spirit of communal provision, of saying there is abundance and we will find it. The mechanisms of power may come to try and crush but what happens, like the feeding of the 5,000, is more abundance pours out of the woodwork. And we can start to envision a different kind of world. The Black Panther Party was an anti-policing organization. And so it's no wonder that the police knew that a breakfast program would somehow lead to abolition. The police believed in the Black Panther Party as much as the Black Panther Party believed in the Black Panther Party, and that's why they came to crush them.
Hunger is a means of oppression, but it is also specifically a way of robbing energy, of taking away our capacity to resist. And so, the revolutionaries, the Black Panthers, as they were giving breakfast, they sought to edify kids. They sought to build them up. They told them that they could be revolutionaries if they wanted, and that a revolutionary was a changer. You can't be a changer if you can't learn and dream, and you can't learn and dream if you are too hungry to focus on anything else. Basic provision of needs is revolutionary. Collaborative meals are radical. They called it a socialistic project for the masses, not for the chosen few. And masses indeed, they in just a few years of this program, they fed tens of thousands of children. Now that phrase, chosen few, it sparks my imagination. Who are the chosen few in our culture? Anybody getting real fed up with Elon Musk these days? Elon Musk is a billionaire. He's the richest man in the world. And last year, after some comments made by a director of the UN World Food Program, there was a headline that said, 2% of Elon Musk's fortune could solve world hunger. Now, Elon Musk saw that and tweeted back that if they could give a detailed plan, he would donate that money. And so the UN World Food Program clarified that it could save 42 million people on the brink of starvation with $6.6 billion from Musk. They gave a detailed plan within two weeks. Musk went radio silent, has never donated that money, never brought it up again, and then bought Twitter for $44 billion on a whim. This is the world we live in, and that is the relationship to food and provision we have. We are taught that this is normal. People like Elon Musk are called job creators and innovators. Jesus called them robbers and thieves. The scriptures say that their wealth will rise up, that we will rot and corrode and testify, them, testify against them in court before God. As long as we can't imagine a world without billionaires or hungry children, we can't imagine the kingdom. We can make a new world together. We can build a world with no billionaires and no hungry children. Eldridge Cleaver, in talking about the free breakfast program, he said this, if we can understand breakfast for children, can we not also understand lunch for children and dinner for children and clothing for children and education for children and medical care for children? And if we can understand that, why can we understand not only a people's park, but people's housing and people's transportation and people's industry and people's banks? And why can't we understand a people's government? Why can't we understand a people's kingdom, an anti-empire, a God's economy of liberation and love and provision for all? It starts at breakfast. It starts at a meal. It starts at the table. It begins with the provision of nourishment of our material bodies, not just our spirits. And of our spirits, not just our material bodies. Jesus is the bread of life. 
All who come to him do not hunger because he literally feeds them in every way. And he calls us to do the same for one another every day in our communities. We can be this community of people. And it begins with a meal. I don't know if y'all know, but we're, uh, we're gathering to eat a meal on Wednesday night. <laughs> I think you should come. I think you should come. We'll be having community meals, brunches on Sundays, and dinners on Wednesdays at least once a month. And this is a spiritual and revolutionary practice. Bring anyone who is hungry. Gather what you have to share. Envision a world where no one goes hungry. Envision a world where everyone feels like family enough to come to family dinner. We can grow our faith into revolutionary, prophetic vision. We can become changers. And it begins at the table with community. The last thing I'd like to share for you is a vision that the Black Panthers had for the children of the breakfast program and their subsequent liberation schools. They said, revolution means change. Revolutionaries are changers. Liberation means freedom. And by their collective view of themselves, as part of a big family, that's in all caps, big family, working, playing, and living together in the struggle. May we share in that vision. May we be that radical May we join together at the table. Will you pray with me? Holy God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the radical revolutionary message of a meal. Nourish our bodies, our spirits, our community, and our life. God, your revolution means change. Make us revolutionaries and changers. Bring liberation, which is freedom. Bring that freedom through our collective view of ourselves as part of a big family, your family, God, brothers, sisters, siblings in Christ, playing and working and living together in the struggle for true freedom. Amen.